0: Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. and welcome to this latest edition of Tales from Outer Space, where I take stories from across the internet and read them for your entertainment. This particular story is called The Human's Newest Pet, written by Captain Candy. Well, that's it, is it? The humans finally got them. The Galactic Council tried to keep the humans from getting them in many different ways, putting out a ban on genetic editing on any non-consenting sentient lifeforms, telling them, that it would be a boring and time-consuming, monotonous task. We told them that we ourselves had tried something similar several times, but the cost and the dull nature of the research was too much. We lied and made false reports about how our scientist who never really existed killed himself from banging his head on his desk one too many times out of sheer boredom. We put laws in place preventing sentients from subjugating and taking in non-sentient races or uplifting them. There are, of course, clauses to grandfathering pets that are already domesticated. It's fine to keep domesticating pet animals that were domesticated before the law, but to do so to a new species is strictly prohibited. We told the humans that it was due to some reptilian race domesticating a mammalian super-predator, but it wasn't. No... It was to prevent the humans from making their own super-predator, one that when the rest of the galaxy heard about collectively, had a panic attack. Now this is maybe an overreaction as some races actually do have old super-predators as domesticated pets. In fact, it's almost like domestication and becoming an intelligent dominant race go hand in hand. Like the Quo and their insect Meek pets. Small spider-like things with size like an earth mantis at the front and senses well beyond the Kualan themselves. Just as an example, these meek have a full range of vision and a range in size from small enough to carry on a shoulder to large enough to ride into war. These are terrifying, yes, but compared to the things the humans wanted to create, they were puny, stupid and weak little things to be crushed like bugs. The humans already have their own super predators too, of course. Like their so-called humanity's best friend, or dogs, who come in so many sizes and breeds, I'd be stupid to list them all here. Quadrupedal beasts who can outrun any human, have a sense of smell, used for tracking That bordered on uncanny. Combined with humans' tracking skills, they never fail to find their prey. The dogs' senses of hearing, or their crushing bite force, etc. Still, Compared to what the humans wanted to make, even these dogs seemed docile and tame. Like cute, cuddly little toys. But, despite our absolute best efforts, the humans managed to get not one or two, but 27 different breeding programs from crossbreeding and in vitro fertilization. Methods which, as defined by galactic law, are not technically genetic engineering. Now, humans have their long-sought-after, long-extinct pet. Yes, extinct. The Galactic Council has absolutely buried the records, and I mean buried them. But we visited Earth before towards the middle of their medieval era, when we saw the humans' tendency to tame dangerous creatures, and a creature so dangerous that one of the scouts went into fear-induced coma. We decided one of them had to go. One of these beasts attacked the research ship, and the pilots waved it off. They were in a state-of-the-art armoured galactic scout ship that could deflect micrometeors in the void like they were nothing and take the heat of re-entering any planet with ease. But this creature's teeth punctured the armour like it was paper. Its claws shredded the plate armour like it was soft threads. Then there was the breath. These things, due to some quirk in their biology, could store methane inside their specialised lung-like organ this methane was used to boost their metabolic rates that were needed, giving it an insane heating rate. But the other use for it is the reason we almost lost that scout ship. The creature, this flying scaled monster, would, in its infancy, eat its own eggshell, which had a high concentration of flint in it. This flint would coat the back molars of the beast's teeth. Then, as they grew and stored the methane in their bodies, they would gain the ability to release it all through their mouth. As they opened their jaws, their other teeth would strike the flint, causing a spark. In essence, they could, for bursts of up to 30 human seconds, breathe fire with a cool down of a week or so, while methane built back up in their system. The scout ship's heat shield was overwhelmed and completely collapsed after five seconds, and the scoring on the ship when it was putted back into docks was almost like a form of art. The council, of course, immediately sent out a military fleet and exterminated that species, Now, genocide like that is rare and highly frowned upon, but these monsters, those dragons, needed to go. The eastern dragons were long noodle-like things that had an anti-gravity organs. Yes, organs. These things had anti-gravity biologically. Their scales were immune to every single type of damage that we tried to throw at them until we literally started throwing it at them using ballistics. They could also breathe fire, but they could adjust the cone intensity, and thus the temperature of it. How ships going down in plumes of white-hot flame was not entirely uncommon, sadly. We aren't even sure how we got all of these eastern ones either. They were smart, crafty things, not sapient, but definitely intelligent. Once enough of their numbers were culled, they hid, and after searching for ten years and not finding any, we collected our scrap and left to the west. The western dragons were hardier things, bulky as hell, but we needed some seriously high-caliber rounds and armor-piercing in order to even hurt them. Killing them took the equivalent of an orbital bombardment weapon to their face. They couldn't control the heat of their fire, but the bursts of it made it so they didn't matter even a little. The sheer volume of fire made up for it. Their claws were, we still don't even know the alloy to properly compare it to. Now. The humans have recreated these old monsters that they thought were legends. As a side note, the humans are the most terrifying predators the galaxy has ever fucking seen. They would go out with nothing but metal armor and swords, sharp metal sticks and fight these things. Often even successfully slaying them. We tried, we really tried to stop the humans from getting dragons again. But it won't be ten Earth years before we end up seeing these beasts on human battlefields or following loyally behind a human through the space station, or if they are like the eastern variety hanging around the human's neck willingly like a scarf. Even worse, the dragons the humans have bred can actually speak and are by all measure sapient. They choose to be human pets and followers. Choose it! This also means that they can consent to genetic augmentation And tampering, too. At least, the old dragons were somewhat intelligent, but none of them could actually speak. Global super predators, sure, but still animals. Honestly speaking, the humans should thank us a little bit. Old dragons love to eat humans, especially for some odd reason. They would attack towns, villages, hell. Even a few cities fell under the wrath of these creatures. A lot of the humans tried to tame them for a long, long time, but nobody did anything but become a mealful of the old dragon. After a while, the humans gave up and just started hunting the beasts back. But now, the dragons they have are not only intelligent, but sentient. These new dragons, due to said intelligence, are orders of magnitude more dangerous than their old separated ancestors. I wish that we were all to it, but it isn't. Dragon psychology is now a thing, and apparently they have this mentality that humans are the superior race to them, not through might or birth, but by knowledge and understanding. The dragons now willingly start their own growth genetically, to stay by the human side. The western dragons are no bigger than a great dane, a large breed of dog, intentionally so, as to not be in their master's way. Yes, master. The humans hate this term, but dragon pride apparently sees it as a must, and whatever human adopts them is from that point forwards their master. They don't see themselves as slaves, as they will leave abusive masters or retaliate. But as service and family members of these humans, now, the eastern dragons prefer to normally be the size of a boa constrictor from Earth, a large reptilian predator with an uncanny resemblance to what the dragons were, perhaps a branch in their evolution. They love to hang around the necks and shoulders of their human masters and share their body heat. They aren't cold-blooded, they just like the warmth. Kind of like human cats. On that note, the eastern dragons can also be just as fickle as a damn cat. They can at least accept a wrong, though. The western arseholes will double, triple, and quadruple down like a stubborn bull. But I think that phrase will soon be replaced with a stubborn as a western dragon. At this point... There is an honest to science debate in the council right now over whether or not just to tell the humans about the past. The two opinions boil down to this. If we don't tell the humans and they find out about it, they will go to war on an unholy vengeance. The other side is, if we tell the humans, they'll get angry and go on an unholy war of vengeance. But well, if you're watching this, you know that I said feck it and told the humans this is, after all, the galactic-wide livestream. Now, I've been ignoring chat because let's see. Oh, oh my. There are a lot of humans here. Good, some mixed reactions, but mostly thankful for telling them there would seem. Oh, let's hope the gamble pays off then. History vault of the High Counselor Nick of the Zenon race for the message that brought peace to the galaxy. End of story. Dragon's Council, written by Dark Prince 010. The two human diplomats shifted and fidgeted nervously in the antechamber of the Galactic Council. Humanity had been excited to prepare their bid to join the Council. It was generally agreed that it would be likely to be a shoe in, provided they made a good impression with the select members of the High Council. I've got to say, I never thought that I'd be standing here, said Hamish, straightening his tie and his formal suit. Next to him, Sarai smoothed out some of the wrinkles in her dress, and quickly checked her communicator. "'Should be any moment now,' she murmured. Amish was still wide-eyed, staring at the declarations and carvings in the crystal windows of the antechamber. Here and there were art pieces, holographic or physical, tucked away into alcoves, and the effect was almost intoxicating. This sheer history here,' he said. "'There is so much.' That's the thing that's amazed me the most with this meeting aliens, is seeing how many of their cultures and species produce art, and just how fantastic and varied it all is. Sarai nodded, taking a moment to glance around at the artwork as well. It's a shame that they had a dark age all those centuries ago. Otherwise, could you imagine how much more there might be in here? She turned to Hamish directly, stepping forward so that her low murmur would not be heard by the undetected microphones. How is the extraction team doing? Do they have a confirmation? Henry checked his wrist communicator. There was a display on it that simply showed four squares, each one showing a red X. Not yet, he said. No confirmation. But if we timed it right, we should have it in the hand momentarily. Sarai sighed, grumbling. They were supposed to have it in hand an hour ago. I... my... I can't imagine that the treasury would be exactly easy to venture into and take a peek around. Otherwise, everyone would do it. Sarai snorted and opened her mouth. Before she could say anything else, there was a gentle chime, and a voice came over the speaker. Delegates of Earth Petition, please make your way in and welcome. Hamish and Sarai stepped forward through the opening doors into an enormous circular amphitheater. There were hundreds upon hundreds of seats, chairs, desks, and similar stations for a dizzying array of alien species. While some of these were empty, humanity had endeared themselves to many upon introduction to the wider galactic community. And so, there were quite a few supporters showing up to see how this bid turned out, and to celebrate them when it inevitably was approved. Looking over to the seats of the High Council representatives, Sarai murmured back to her mission. I see four of the five seats are filled. We've got a Vosh, a Grayan, and a Carrick. Oh, and a Sulian. Hamish put on a smile, but his voice was uncertain. That's two solid votes for, about also a solid vote against with Grayon. The Carrick will almost inevitably vote along with whoever is the strongest voice in the group. For now, I think they'll be leaning in our favor. It's all good. His voice cut off as there was a swooping swoosh of wings and a roar that echoed around the chamber. Shit, said Hamish and Sarai in unison under their breath. The dragon swooped in a single showy pass through the amphitheater. Before turning in midair to alight itself upon the final council chair, the anti gravity generators of the hovering platform strained under the additional weight, and the two humans could feel the entire platform perspectively tilt slightly in the direction of the enormous lizard that had landed on the one end. Of course, with our luck, it's going to be Tarash, but, murmured Hamishback, think of our luck. Of all the draconic council members, to rush is the one we were stuck with. Sarai mused on this for a second before her smile became slightly wider and far more genuine. The desperate discussions and background conversations in the chamber ceased as the dragon held up a claw. The other High Council members looked at it as it began to speak. Honored representatives, we are here to weigh the application of humans into the Galactic Council. This species' home planet is is host to approximately 12 billion of these individuals, and they have a number of colonies throughout their solar system, as well as nearby systems. Humans have shown that they are willing to cooperate and abide by our rules, befriending many of you in the Council already. And here, there was a murmur of agreement and anticipation. They have, in the best traditions of the council, shown themselves to be able to peacefully coexist with all other members of the council. It seems like the other representatives within the council were murmuring with anticipation and perceiving this was going well. But Hamish and Sarai could tell that the other shoe was about to drop. However, the dragon continued, Hamish murmured. There it is. Earth was once the homeworld of my species as well, before we fled due to the actions of none other than the humans. There was a round of gasps and murmurs. This part of the dragon's history had not necessarily been hidden, but had not been emphasized or widely spoken of, even as humans were emerging onto the galactic stage. Yes, for humans attacked and hunted us without mercy, killing untold thousands of my kin, until we fled into the depths of space and hoped that might lend some salvation from their bloodthirst. The tenor of the room had changed. There were still a few staunch supporters of humanity who were shaking their heads in disbelief, but many more had mouths open in horror, or even startling to mumble and whisper angrily about this revelation. The humans raised their hands to address these accusations. It is true that we had some conflicts with humans and dragons in the past, but I do not believe there's evidence that those problems would continue. The dragon cutting in again with a raw rob- Oh, true, we left several hundred years ago, but even as recently as earlier this century, you humans have made stories in media portraying us as villains to be slain. The dragon gestured to a holographic screen, and it began a prepared slideshow. The picture showed various roaring dragons attacking humans in movies, a few of them ones that Sarai and Hamish recognized from watching as children. If you villainize us to such a degree in your stories, what assurances do we have that you would not turn upon us and attempt to rekindle that bloodthirst once more? Amish could feel his heart racing, but at a glance at his communicator showed not one but two of the four boxes had a green check marks on them. He nodded towards Sarai, who glanced down as well, her eyes widening. Excellent, she whispered. I'll take it from here. Stepping forward in front of Hemish, she raised her hand, not to the dragon and the High Council, but to the remaining members of the Galactic Council. Esteemed representatives, The story of humanity and dragons has, it is true, never been one of peace and harmony for the most part. However, a great deal of the strife has come from the human urge to explore, and our innate curiosity to find out what is hidden. Backlashes with the dragon's love for hoarding that which they hide, she turned to stare at the dragon dead in the eye, especially that which they have taken for themselves. Turning back to the crowd in the assembled auditorium, she said, When humanity first learned of the Galactic Council, and also of the survival of the dragons, we could not help but notice that there was a dearth of artifacts from amongst the various beautiful arts and crafts of your cultures. What you collectively call your Dark Age, corresponding to the period around a century or two after the dragons would have made contact with the greater galactic community. It struck us as odd, yet there were few explanations just museums that had been destroyed with no survivors left, or archaeological sites that had been ravaged and looted. So, it was with that we began to have our suspicions, and set forth to validate, more to disprove those suspicions. The dragon snorted, smoke and a small jet of flame blowing from its nose as it growled, You dare accuse us of theft and of defiling the artifacts and histories of other races? That seems much more like a human thing to do, I would say. Sarai smiled grimly at him. This is indeed a great accusation and would be reprehensible one to make, she said as the murmurs grew in the crowd. But we did not come here without evidence. She turned to Himesh, who had been fiddling with the broadcast settings on his wrist communicator. The slideshow the dragon put up on the projector was replaced. This time, with a live camera feed from the infiltration team, that had managed to breach the interior of the dragon's fortified treasury. It was a modern-day horde, kept within a remote, heavily armed space station. This is a live feed from our investigators, Sarai said. I believe these may look familiar to you, she said, as the camera slowly and carefully panned over jeweled and finely wrought metal crafts, jewelry, coins, and icons. Here and there were larger pieces of artwork and canvases and other media, and as the camera continued murmuring, began to grow, soon becoming shouting throughout the Council Amphitheatre, as the various cultures there began to recognize their own artifacts amongst them. This is but one station of but one dragon, Sarai continued, as the draconic delegate in front of her glowered and growled deep in the back of his throat. This delegate, in fact, she said, pointing an accusing finger at tarush We know the location of dozens of other stations just like this. And while we have not pierced their defenses, we suspect them to contain much of the same loot from amongst all of your histories. Things that were taken from you, they now hoard. The uproar amongst the delegates had further escalated, with many calling for the investigation and impeachment of the draconic delegate, further still demanding the expulsion of dragons altogether, and even a few bloodthirsty races were demanding their public execution for such an outrage. Sarai held up her hand for a calm once more, mostly succeeding in quieting down the raging masses of delegates. I understand your frustrations, for we also experienced the same outrage back when we coexisted on our homeworld. I would like to be the first to recommend the dragons peacefully and completely return all that was stolen, and an enforceable promise to never do so again. But I would ask that they remain members in good standing with the council. The magnanimous proposition had desired effect. There were nods of agreement, and Sarai was pleased to see the heated calls for execution of the dragons had fallen silent. However, she and Hamish could feel a smug curl of satisfaction as a dragon began to sputter and roar in outrage. While not many facts of dragons had survived from olden times, it appeared that the accounts of their jealousy for their horde and reluctance to lose even a single piece of it were indeed true to their word. The dragon whipped his head around to face them, and over his mouth an ominous glow quickly built in his throat. At the jet of flame he unleashed, a pair of council guards leapt forward, and a blue shielding sprang up to provide protective bubble for the humans, who cowered as the fire washed over. As they stood unharmed and the smoke cleared, the shape of the dragon could be seen quickly soaring out the way it came in. Hamish turned to the nearest council guard. I suggest you lock down his ship or else you're liable to not be able to catch him once he gets into open space. The guard nodded, issuing commands to their communicator. There was already a rising wave of hubbub and crosstalk echoing in the chamber of the amphitheater as races reached out to their own historians and archaeologists with news of what had been revealed. But Amish knew that they still had to make sure that they did this the right way. He called for attention in front of the council once more. ''I believe the matter of our acceptance has not been confirmed. I have a suspicion I know how the esteemed draconic delegate feels about it,'' he said, nodding towards the open door the dragon had fled through. Both Surai and a number of other aliens chuckled. ''But what say you?'' he said to the other High Council members. There was a mere glance between them, and all four raised their hands with a resounding cry of ''I!'' Almost immediately, there was an echoed by an eye from the rest of the chamber, and then a roaring cheer for the daring humans. You realize that this is likely earning the ire of their entire species, and then not in substantial battle feat, warned one of the High Council members as they exited from the chamber and walked to the plaza outside. No, that's all right. Humans, and our long history with dragons, have done more than just loot a few hordes here and there. Unable to resist the flair for the dramatic, she tagged her communicator, This is Sarai. On your marks, Captain, please drop your cloaking. An appreciative gas went up from a number of alien races, as the human battlecruiser in low orbit uncloaked, revealing a brilliant chrome ship, nearly a mile long and thin, only a few hundred feet across. Now I'd like to introduce you to the Spear of St. George, she said proudly. One of the guards came stumbling forward, smoke coming from their decorative cape and armoured plating. The the, the delegate escaped and uh, destroyed almost half of the docking platforms in the East Ring. There was a quavering in the alien's voice as they continued. They killed dozens, maybe a hundred, just bathed the whole platform in flames until nothing was between them and their ship. Sarai frowned and Amish stepped forward. My understanding of council law is that murderously dangerous criminals, such as our former delegate here, must be captured alive if possible. But to be stopped under any circumstances, would you all agree that this would be the case?" There was a series of solemn nods and outright fists shaking as a ship in the distance. They could see the dragon ship, a broad and jagged craft seemingly hewn from rock itself, taking off. The docking port's defense lasers fired on it, glancing off the dense stone with little to no effect. In that case, esteemed delegates of the council, I would like to demonstrate for the first time in 900 years how humans slay dragons. There was a ripple felt through space-time, almost a gravetic lurch, pulling everything momentarily towards the far end of the human battleship. The rippling seemed to intensify around the base of it, light warping until abruptly the clouds it was breathed in parted, shattering into feather-like shards that appeared like a pair of wings framed in a thin vessel. The front end of the ship glowed a blinding blue for a brief moment, before a lance of energy, barely narrower than the ship itself, shot out. The beam smashed into the dragon's ship, which provided only a moment of resistance before exploding. And then, the explosion too was consumed by the beam of energy, as it flared through the sky. Hemish turned to the Assembly of Representatives. It is unfortunate that our comrade chose to act as he did. We do hope that the remainder of his kind will be more amenable to making the appropriate reparations, then he held up his wrist communicator. Spear of St. George, you are clear to begin the sweep. Good hunting. End of story. Humans are Teachers, written by John Galt. Snip was wet, her face dripping, palms slipping on the knife. It fell from her fingers, the nasty thin shard bouncing on the bulkhead beside the messy corpse between her thighs. Oh, a oh, feck, she said. Her hearts were beating so fast, threatening to rip out of her chest and sprint down the hall, all on their own. Her shaking hands came together, trying to still themselves. The rakhine was still warm, its blood oozing out and running along the floor. Is this your inaugural experience of taking a life? Snip jumped off the body, scooping up the knife and holding it close, staring wide-eyed up at her. at a human. He was looking at Snip, expecting an answer. She knew English, how it sounded, but rarely spoke the language. Yes, she said. The human crouched over the body, pistol in hand, keeping a little distance between himself and Snip. He eyed the shaky knife, warily, before looking down at the body, using the nose of his pistol to turn open the Rakhine's vest. He stowed his weapon and reached for the Rakhine's sidearm, drawing it and checking the chamber. He removed the magazine, thumbing the ejected round and replacing it. He turned off the safety, the rack slamming home, ready to fire. Using a six-shooter makes it simpler. You don't have to get up close and personal as you do with a knife, he said, offering her the grip. She reached out, surprised to find the metal was warm. Her fingers wrapped around the handle. She knew not to point it toward him, keeping it aimed toward the ground, to only raise it when she intended to kill. You're a human, she said. Oh, and how did you discern that? I- I've seen humans before, uh, pictures in, in books. Uh, you're stuck on the station too, she said. He smiled at her, a crooked side smile, while he said remained inclined towards the corpse. Missed them escape shuttles. Your kinfolk sure hightailed it out of here in a hurry, he said. That's what we do. S- the sift is run. We live on fleet of foot in salted soil. Ain't no use waiting on the cavalry, friend. They won't be riding in till the Rokine are long gone, he said. He offered her the magazine he found on the Rokine's hip. She looked at the pistol and knife. She eased down the latter and accepted them one at a time, tucking them into her waistband. Not until the Rokine finished salting the station. Uh, Sorry, uh, finished looting. Uh, They they won't stay. There isn't any money in actually running this fuel stuff. Your scheme is to hold up till they ride on out of these parts, huh? Snip nodded. Her eyes followed the human as she rifled through the Rokine's pockets his hand pausing and a broad smile crossing his lips as he lifted a grenade from the bloodied corpse. He eyed her, watching the occasional afterquake run shivering down her fingers. These eased the grenade into his own coat and patted the pocket. It was better that way. She was no fighter. I had me the notion of stirring up some dust and and you're welcome to go along if you are of mind, he said i should stay in the vents she said nodding to the side where the vent cover had been unscrewed the scattered food packets littered the floor where she had been caught well reckon you can follow your own star partner may the winds of fortune favor you he said wait she said looking up from her spot where she sat squat she didn't know why she said it he was a human he wasn't going to hide in the vents he wasn't going to let them trash and burn his station so why did she ask him to wait? He stared at her, the same unspoken question in his eyes. Can I go with you? She said. Which tomes had folk like me between their pages, partner? He said. Louis L. Lamar. My, my father traded them from a regular fuel rat. A smile slowly crept across his face. He ran a finger along the brim of his hat and tipped it towards her, then rose, walking away from her vent, down the hall without another words. Snip glanced at the nasty, dusty vent, screws puncturing through the sheet metal that liked to snag her clothes. He was getting further away, walking upright and confident in the open, despite the occasional distant rumble that rocked the station and made the lights flicker. She grabbed a bunch of food packets, stuffing them down into her pockets and chased after him, keeping her finger off the trigger, remembering all the lessons on how to not shoot yourself in the foot. Sniff stood flat against the wall, The human stood on the far side of the corridor, mirroring her posture, his hand up, telling her to stop. He then lowered it slowly and they both crouched down with it. He dropped his fingers down one at a time. Three, two, one. She hesitated for a fraction then came around, pistol pointed forward to see the three rakhine fall away, leathery skin rippling from the shots. The hallway roared with gunfire as all three collapsed at the intersection. Again and again it rumbled as the first hits merely wounded them. He kept firing until the killing blow had been struck against all three. She saw it all, no finger hovering over the trigger, her mind trying to quiet itself, regaining control of her shaking hand. Her ears whined in a slowly easing scream. Good aim, but you'd best be the one squeezing the trigger on the next go-round, he said. Snip winced, but didn't lower her gun, keeping it pointed at the bodies as she walked up. He kicked them over, one at a time. He was only satisfied and lowered his guard once he saw the broken state of each of them up close. She was getting better. She looked this time. She knew the next part. And now, he said. She put a new magazine in her pistol, made sure there was one in the chamber, and the safety was off. Good. And then? We make sure to eye them doors and shadows, she said, entering the intersection and hugging one wall. She glanced around the corner, gun pointed at nothing, then checked the opposite way. He watched her while squatting over her body. He waited until she finished before he eyed the rifle they had. Why are you teaching me? she said. Teachers, they just can't resist the soul hungry for knowledge, can they? he said. He picked up one of the rifles, nodding to himself as he checked if his hand fit the shape of the grip. It looks heavy, she said, but they put him down more reliably, he said. She eyed the rifle he offered and holstered her still unfired pistol. The gun was bulky, built for creatures far larger than her. She saw him hold his own against his chest and mimicked him, keeping the weight close, getting a feel for it. She eyed the structure, pulling out the magazine to check it and get the feel for how heavy a full one was. She replaced the magazine and pulled back the bolt, checking the breech to see the shell slide in smoothly. He nodded. Also, uh, you're a vast learner. Not fast enough, she said while eyeing the shells. She wouldn't need to be so accurate, but it didn't matter what kind of weapon she had if she still wasn't going to shoot it. Rukain are not known for fancy firing, he said. Neither am I, none of that. You're the last of your kind still standing on this turf. It hadn't been by choice, dashing home to get her books instead of running like everyone else. Don't drown in them could-haves and might-have-beens, partner. We need to figure our path right here and now, he said. They came from one corridor. One path led toward the docks where the Rokai were sickest. Another wider tunnel led along, running down the length of the station. And a third went away where it would be quieter. Missing your vent, he said. We ain't done stirring the dust without their grenade of yours, partner, she said and turned towards the wider corridor. Snip followed him through the hydroponics, coming out past the large tanks. It had been slow going and she still hadn't fired a shot. She had at least gotten reloading down to a fine art. When she did start firing, she was going to be a reloading champion. She followed him around a corner when she bumped into a wall of scaly lizard flesh. She raised a rifle only for it to be battered aside from her hands. Found the shit, he barked. Snip reached for her hip, but the world went black. She didn't even feel the sensation of falling back, just the wall crashing against her. She blinked away her daze, only to be hammered again bouncing, then pressed flat against the wall, his arm across her chest, pressing her flat and forcing the air from her lungs. Who gave you that gun? shouted the Rokhine. Snip looked past him, seeing two others just behind and the human further back. She bit her tongue. She just needed to hold on. Why hadn't he fired yet? Who's been killing my men? Snip's head rang, her face blooming out with pain and the vision in her right eye turning red. She glanced at the human, eyes bleeding. She wanted to know why he wasn't helping. The human's eyes were filled with fire, watching her, willing her to use what he had taught her. She followed her hunch and reached into her coat. There she found the heavy metal grenade and had her answer. Why had it always been in her coat? Why he wouldn't help and why he couldn't? Snip pulled the grenade, thumb flicking out in the pin and letting the hammer fly away. The Rokine's eyes went wide, and he threw himself back, scrambling for traction on the smooth floor. Snip through the grenade hard, soaring well past the Rokine. She reached down, drawing her pistol. The grenade went off in the distant hallway, shattering plastic panels and ringing the room like a drum. There was no flame, just a pain in her ears that took away all sound. Just one last lesson, said the human. She couldn't hear anything, not the scrambling Rokine or the crashing station, but she could hear the human's calm words. She stood, feet apart, both hands braced on the pistol as she guided her aim. His face by her shoulder. She knew that she could hit them. She had done it a dozen times already, but his guidance was reassuring. And fire, he said. The pistol was muted, thunder in her hands, striking each Rokine at center mass. His hand eased away, stepping back as she fired the last of her shots and reloaded with smooth practice movements. Mighty divine shooting! he said. He smiled, ran a finger along the brim of his cowboy hat, tipping it towards her and then was gone. Thank you, she said to the empty corridor, barely able to hear her own words. Snoop sat at the air vent, squeezing her juice box and sucking on a straw. She sketched in the pad as she watched another Rokine ship leave. Twenty Rokine out, zero in. There was a distant rumble, far off on the station, that felt like more than heard coming from the hydroponic side check bodies in hydroponics rig new booby trap she wrote she cleaned the pistol taking it apart and oiling the pieces her clothes and notebook stained black and red as she went she pulled out one of the rolled up cloth earplugs eyeing the crusty blood and replacing it with a fresh one 16 Rokine out zero in bind clean clothes the Rokine on the dock were acting strange they were running for some reason Snip shuffled over a little, putting her shoulder to the rifle that she'd stolen from the armory. With a cheek against the stock, she could see through the scope. The Rukhine were shouting at each other, making rude gestures at some of the loot that they had dragged out before jumping onto their ship. It was the third that had left in as many minutes. She'd watched the footage, all Sifters had, watching the Rukhine trash their homes through the security recordings, help them better hide their personal effects, but she had never seen them act like this before. She climbed along the tunnel, careful not to snag herself on the screws that mounted it in the place, climbing along the clunky filters and humidifiers that blocked her way at points, then slid out into the corridor. She held still for a moment, but she couldn't hear anything. She took it slow, making sure not to walk blind around any more intersections like an idiot, checking doors and corners as she went. The station rumbled as another transport took off and left. Snap held the auto shotgun, A long-ranged rifle slung over her back, pistol at the ready on her hip. She came out onto the docks to see them empty. It usually took them a month to tire of picking her home's bones clean, but they were gone only after six days. There were no transports, no sounds, nothing. Snip brought along the cargo flat, the machine rumbling along the rubber wheels behind her, a mound of bodies bouncing along with every imperfection in the floor. She set her teeth and grunted with effort while dragging them off the docking bay floor. There was a lot to clean up before her people returned, traps to disarm, bodies to collect before they festered. She carried chunks over, her stomach turning as she tossed them into a wet pile. There was a tone on the dock and a snip brought up a rifle, backing up towards the entrance of the cargo bay while training the barrel on the faint docking fields that held the air in. There were few stars in the desert between galactic arms, It made picking out the dot that moved much faster. It grew in size, Large and bulky structure, turrets hanging off sides, armed to the teeth. It wasn't Rokide, so Snip lowered her rifle. The ship passed through the docking field, its roaring engines suddenly thundering inside the docking bay and kicking up a wind. It lingered above the deck for a few moments, holding position as though deep in thought. She could see figures moving around in the cockpit, English written across the nose the Daisy Marie in scrawling letters with barely dressed humans soaring against the wind painted on the side. Snip raised a hand, waving it awkwardly in a standard human greeting. The ship threw out its landing gear and dropped a cargo ramp, easing down with five humans shoulder to shoulder. Weapons hung loose in their straps. English, speak human, said one. He only looked at her occasionally, his eyes far more focused on a weapon and the mound of bodies Snip rolled her jaw, adjusting her tongue to make the consonants and vowels of their language once again. I reckon I sling English well enough for these parts, Snip said. Their attention fell onto her, staring and making her wonder if she pronounced it all wrong. You mind if we fuel up? I ain't the pump master around here, just a cook in the kitchens. But if you reckon you can break them pipes yourself and settle your dues, you'll find a hearty reception when you ride back this way, said Snip. One of the humans let out a laugh his face turning bright red as he nodded along. He made a few strange gestures and pointed over to the hydrogen pumps, but the crew were sluggish to move. Their attention still fixed on Snip. We'll pay full price, we're honest mercenaries. How many of them did you kill? He said, nodding over to the side. They spoke strangely in short sentences, but she had a feel for what they were trying to say. All of them. But there was a good soul riding with me for the first twelve, she said. One of the humans turned to his captain. Oh, uh, Can we? He said. The captain gave a sideways glance to the smiles on the crew's faces, her laugh slowly rising up and reddening his cheeks. We're, um, riding out to hunt vagabonds for coin. It beats cooking for a nowhere truck stop. Uh, if you're inclined, partner. slip eyed the team. They looked just like a ragtag group from one of her books, the kind of adventure she had always wanted to go on. She grinned and quickly ran over anything that she needed to do before she left. The traps had already been disarmed, the bodies would rot, but someone else could clean that up. They wouldn't miss one of their cooks, they had plenty. She could make enough money to leave and not be stuck here like the rest of her kind. But the other sifters wouldn't leave, even if they could. They would stay and get hit with raid after raid, taking away what little profit they could make. I reckon I can't ride with you, for it seems my folks need a human more than you need a sifter, she said. Her hand raising to the tip of a hat she wasn't wearing. I tip my hat to your generous offer, all the same, partner. End of story. How to Become a Mortal, written by Jayhawk Fools. The man who became God grinned as he looked upon the obsidian doors in front of him, rain peppering his face. It had been several millennia since he had last started his journey to become mortal. Ever since he told his creton of a father his wish, and having it thrown back in his face, he had sworn to make it a reality. It was then that he had turned away from his given name, and refused to be acknowledged as anything other than his birthright. At first, he thought his study of magic would bring about the answer, but after discovering that it would only lead him to becoming a mad lich who barely remembered his name, he knew that he had to take a different path. He may not have been the nicest person, but he knew crazy when he saw it. Then he thought undying devotion to a deity might bring about his wish. If they'd become immortal, why couldn't he? But after he killed his first god, he knew that was not the answer either. They were just like him. Creatures who had obtained enough power to play as gods, knowing full well that a simple slash of the blade in the right spot could bring them crumbling down. It was then... That he was told the true path to immortality by a soothsayer with knowledge not of this world how he knew she spoke truth he could not say and yet her word struck his soul like an arrow hitting a target she had told him there had only ever been one person to become a truly immortal behind doors of solid obsidian and that to reach him was akin to reaching the stars above the old hag had warned him that he would not find his wish and yet after so long, he stood in front of these doors, knowing his reward was a simple push away. He turned around and looked out upon the world beneath him, its chaotic grey ocean stretching far beyond his eyesight. Roiding from the ever-present storm above, Messamen would have died before reaching this place, yet not the man who'd become God. He smiled gently, breathing his last breath of mortality before sighing. It is time to fulfil the oath I made as a boy. The man turned back around and placed his palms upon the cool, polished stone, and watched them vanish like mist above a pot. What? he said, confused, before suddenly hearing the sounds of birds chirping in the distance. He turned and saw that, instead of being on the desolate rock in the middle of the tempest, he was now standing in what could only be described as paradise. A long, flat beach stretched out before him, its golden sands glimmering in the sunlight as sapphire blue waves gently crashed into the land. Vibrant green trees shot up above him, giving him shade as a soft, warm breeze hit his face. The man closed his eyes and breathed in the air, feeling it warm him to his core. So, uh, this is immortality. Uh, not quite. The man's eyes shot open, and he turned in the direction of the new voice that had shattered his newfound glee. What he saw only put him more on edge. Sitting in a withered old chair facing the sea was a regular-looking young man, sipping from an odd-shaped glass filled with red and orange liquid. His clothes looked well-made and formal, yet the man who would become God had never seen any kind of deity wear garments so bland. Every piece of cloth was black, save for the cloth around the stranger's neck, which was a deep blood red. On his face were glasses that had been darkened as if to hide his eyes. Yet, the man knew the stranger could see everything in front of him. As the stranger raised his red and orange drink up to his face, he motioned for the man to come closer. You should probably sit. Extra-dimensional travel can put some people on their ass pretty fast. The man who'd become God smirked. I am not some people. He flicked his wrist and the sand beside the stranger shifted against itself. Before a stone throne fit for his majesty, rose out of the beach, the man sat down upon his seat and smiled triumphantly. Says the guy who still sat down, the stranger mumbled into his glass, serving more of each drink. The man looked towards the stranger's face and tried to use his magic to see past the glasses into the audience's eye. Hey, I'm not your audience, the stranger said, which surprised the man. Can you read my thoughts, he thought, trying to keep his face plain. If you're wondering, no, I can't read your thoughts, the stranger said, placing his glass down upon the sand. I've just encountered enough wannabe gods that I know how little you think about people. The man raised an eyebrow. Is that a challenge? The stranger sighed before leaning back into his lawn chair. No, but I'm sure you'll take it as one. Silence followed for the next couple of minutes. Before the sound of snoring made the man realize the stranger had fallen asleep. He cleared his throat as loudly as he could, and the stranger turned his head. Oh, what? The stranger said indignantly. The man who would become God, but his cheek, resisting the urge to use magic to blow this fool to dust. First, he needed answers. Might I presume that you are the one I was told could help me lead me to immortality? I highly doubt it, the stranger said turning to Piggy's glass back up. The man furrowed his brows. And why is that? The stranger sipped from his drink once more, sloping the last remnants down before responding. Because you probably weren't told I could lead you to it. The man was thoroughly confused now. What? What do you mean? The stranger sighed before sitting upright and turning fully to the man. Let me guess, some prophet slash soothsayer slash fortune teller told you. That only one person slash creature slash entity has ever achieved slash gained slash earned immortality. And then either give you a creepy smile and or dreadful warning that what you want most is unobtainable. Am I right? The man nodded, trying to decipher what the stranger was trying to say. Yes, and the words led me to your dolls. Which, when you saw the gigantic obsidian doors in the middle of the deadly storm on a planet so far away from the form of civilization that you must have taken several thousand years to reach, you then opened, not thinking that all of that isn't a massive red flag. The man, starting to get tired of the stranger's petulant attitude. If you will not show me the way to immortality, then you are just another obstacle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's generally what you people call me. Uh, just get to blowing me up already so that we can move this along. The man, who'd become a god, smirked internally as he decided to grant the stranger's wish. He held his hand up to the sky, calling up a storm of clouds above him before smiting a massive lightning bolt down upon the stranger, obliterating everything in a massive explosion. The man, who had become god, vaporized any debris heading in his direction, and watched as the dust and smoke cleared to reveal a massive crater where the stranger had sat. Hm. The man grunted, leaning onto one arm. Maybe I used too much magic. Ah, gee, you think? A voice said right next to him, and he jumped out of his throne, whipping around to see the stranger leaning against the stone, sipping on a brand new drink. There was no sign of any explosion on the young man, and as he sipped his drink, he pointed at the crater. You owe me another chair, by the way. The man who had become God looked at the large crater, watching the chunks of wood burning to ash, before turning back to the stranger. How's this possible? The stranger sighed, stirring his drink. Ah, oh, you do understand the definition of immortal, right? The man couldn't believe his eyes. Now you're saying that you are a being who has achieved immortality? Well, uh, I wouldn't really say achieved, cursed with it, more like, the stranger mumbled, trying to pick up a piece of ice with his straw. The man who had become god smiled with glee, Incredible! (laughs) After all these years, all those false gods and false paths, I have finally found the answer to my question. I, the man who would become God, shall finally become immortal. The stranger scrunched up his face. Uh, yeah, I don't think so, buddy, and uh, I think you should have stuck with Greg. The man felt his blood drain from his face. Nobody knew his true name anymore. He had scrubbed it from history using magic. How do you? Greg, son of Dale, born 1008 years after the rise of the Empire of Gulheim? To a Thatcher and a tavern maid approximately three miles from Galvington. You trained at the Imperial Mages Guild for five years. Apprenticed under Halvar the Wise for thirty-two. Developed a potion to prolong your life by the age of sixty-three. Uh, do I need to go on? Greg stood in shock at the knowledge the stranger had, and watched as the stranger flicked his wrist. Suddenly, he was sitting in front of a beach bar with one of those reddish-orange drinks in his hands. He looked up to see the stranger, whooping out a tin container, still dressed in odd attire. Who are you? How do you know these things? He finally said after a few moments. The stranger whistled, clearly thinking his answer over. Ah, now that you now that's a really long story. As uh, far as who I am, well, um, uh, I've gone by a lot of names over the years. Uh, Thanatos, Michael, Baron Samedi, Uh, not all of them male, uh, mind you. As he said this, the stranger suddenly shifted forms, becoming a young woman, though she was still dressed in black garments. Hell, Persephone, Tia, all different names for me, but I always have the same job. She placed a tin container down and removed her sunglasses, revealing her tired and wary eyes for his grey irises. She looked into Greg's confused eyes, staring deep into his soul, As she gently smiled, I'm Death. Greg dropped his glass, letting it smash underneath his seat. Death frowned, crossing her arms. Hey, that Mai Tai took a long time to perfect. I don't understand, Greg said, standing up and backing away. Are you here to kill me? Was this all a trick? Death grimaced, hemming and hawing before shaking her head. Technically, yes and no, in all honesty. You were told that you weren't going to be able to achieve your wish. Greg, no. He had forsaken that name. The man who would become God shook his head. No! There must be another way. I am the man who would become God. He held out his hand, and in a flash of light, a sword of the Almighty appeared in his hand, its golden blade shining in the sunlight. This blade was foretold to send all who touch it to their death. Death rolled her eyes. Man, you are sicker than most. The man who would become God held the blade out in front of him. I see now what I must do to obtain immortality. I must defeat death itself. Death sighed before appearing in the blink of an eye in front of the sword of the Almighty. The man who'd become God smirked, thinking that his foe had just committed a fatal error. Before he watched Death slowly impale herself onto the blade, right through its heart, his jaw dropped as Death carefully walked forward, until the hilt of his blade rested on her chest. and he looked around to her to see the sword clearly coming out her back. Um, can't really send Death to itself now, can you, Greg? Death sighed in exhaustion, before appearing back behind the bar with no sign of the wound on her chest. She picked up some bottles and started to mix a drink in the tin container. Need a drink? I'll explain everything if you finally stop acting like an idiot. Greg nodded, sitting back in his seat and placing the sword of the Almighty on the bar top. Death shifted forms back into a man, before shaking the drink and pouring it into the glass. He placed an umbrella at the top next to the straw, before sliding it across to Greg. Here, have a try. Greg picked the glass up and took a sip, feeling the delicious drink cool his body from the warm sun. Death watched patiently as Greg sipped more of the drink down, before he placed it back onto the bar top. Now are you ready to listen? Greg nodded, and Death started to mix another Mai Tai as he talked. I wasn't always Death. A uh, Long, long, long time ago. I was like you, just another person, living out their rather normal life. I had a job a family, even a dog. Unfortunately, I was a lot like you and wanted to live forever. So when a being claiming to be Death approached me one day and offered me a job, I was all too happy to take it. A glimmer of hope shimmered in Greg's eyes as he leaned forward, suddenly eager to hear more. Perhaps he could be his answer. Death saw Greg's sudden shift in demeanor and rolled his eyes as he poured another Mai Tai into the grass. Don't be too excited. The story doesn't have a happy ending. Greg scoffed. What do you mean, you became... Death glared at Greg, and suddenly Greg realized that he had made a mistake. The warm breeze suddenly died down as the icy spike grew in his heart, and the sound around him seemed to disappear. Immortal? Do you have any idea what that actually means? Greg shook his head, and Death leaned forward, his shadow growing behind him. Once I took this job, I couldn't die. It was means that I couldn't live. I watched my family grow old and die, and watched their kids grow old and die, over and over and over again until nobody even remembered their names. I watched as my civilization grew, prospered, withered, and died, before being replaced with another and another. I watched as my people slowly evolved into new life forms, different from me in almost every way, traveling to brand new planets and stars as my homeworld was engulfed by its own star. I watched as stars formed, galaxies combined, and universes died before a whole new one started up again, repeating the cycle. Different every time. And sure, I can change how time around me works so I can skip past those first couple billion years of nothing and those last Goggleplex where it's just black holes and quarks. But in the end, I always have to be there as a cosmic force watching over all life in the universe. Silence. Engulfed the area for a time, before death leaned back and the sound of waves resumed in Greg's ears. The original neph didn't fill me in on that little tidbit of knowledge before cursing me with his job, so I decided to explain that to every other being who wants to be immortal. you think I'm fully here, on this island, ignoring the rest of the universe, when I'm not having this conversation with forty other blank who would become gods every dozen millennia? I'm doing my job as a psychopomp, making sure that any time somebody actually dies, they at least get to enjoy a little bit of peace and serenity before they stop existing altogether, like I should have done. Greg sat in silence and watched as Death picked up its Mai tai and took a sip. So, Greg, let me ask you the same question that was put to me all those many years ago. How would you like to become a mortal? Greg shook his head and Death sighed placing its string down and producing a small hand-felled bell. Then I guess this is the end of our discussion. You can stay here if you want. Enjoy the endless bar and sunny beach. Once you are ready, just bring the bell and you'll cease to exist. Wait, what do you mean? Greg said, looking at the bell. You're going to kill me. Death walked around the bar, making sure its suit was in good order, before stopping next to Greg. Of course not. Technically, you've been dead since you touched my doors. All this was just a courtesy. Death patted Greg on the shoulder and smiled gently, like a parent to a child. Enjoy this while it lasts. You've earned it. And suddenly, death was gone, and Greg sat alone in shock. He looked out into the sapphire blue seas and listened to the nature around him. Everything seemed like paradise to him, because it was paradise. And it was then that he realized why it had taken him so long to get here. With every path he took to reach this place seemed to have such a dead end, and why, when he finally did reach his final goal, it was far away from any other life form, surrounded by chaos and destruction to deter all who might try and find it. Death was being kind. End of story. Humans are how old? Written by Random3x. Glimbo was very pleased with himself. He had passed all of his tests and had been selected for a delegation to meet with the first alien race, that he's had ever encountered, it had been generations since first contact, and discussions had been dragging out. Glumbo's greatest wish was to finally close negotiations his forefathers had started. Entering the room where the meeting was meant to take place, he pressed the keypad with the door to announce his arrival. I remember when we had to knock, and all the members of the delegation grumbled. First contact and the initial stages of discussions had been done on its side. This was the first to be done on a human ship fitted to accommodate their race. To think that these slow beings took eight plucks to alter a vessel, the older member continued to grumble. All due respect, sir, their machinery may be more complex than ours. It was the case that a few pieces of technology that had been gifted had been reverse-engineered. They weren't any marvels of function, but they were beyond complex by their race's standards. From the reports Grimbo had read, Ah, welcome delegates, a human said, standing up as the group entered the room. The delegates felt their breath freeze in their throats. They had only seen hollow images of a race identified as humans. I see the halls were not to impress power upon visitors, the old member of the group whispered, looking up at the human who stood a good twice their height. They had naturally assumed the race that they were meeting was the same height as them, a failure the data team would no doubt be reprimanded for. I hope that we can finish these negotiations today it has been a little while since we started and the people back home are eager to start trade yes the old member barked we would have finished these discussions blocks ago had you not delayed so much i apologize for the delays it took us a little while to retrofit parts of the ship to suit your people better i was one of newborn pup when you landed and now I can finally see my race upon the greater stage of the universe. Indeed, uh, we have prepared all the documents you requested. With a flick of his finger on the data slate he was holding, the group felt a buzz from the device appearing on the screen where all agreed upon provisions. Finally! It is good to be here, Blumpo grinned as he read over the document before spotting something. Apologies, human, but what are these numbers here? Numbers? The human repeated, arching a brow. Oh, those are the date. Ah, uh, I thank you. The uh, date? The old delegate barked. "Uh, The progression seems off. Do you measure time differently from us? Uh, It it never really came up, but uh, it is likely, as we are from different worlds. Uh, I see. Uh, I, I suppose that does make sense. The older member marked the document with a digital stamp to indicate his agreement, as did the others in the group. Perfect. With that, we can now proceed with the celebration. Walking over to the wall, the human pressed a wall-mounted device, and machines immediately began bringing out plates of cuisine from their home world. As the other members of the delegation helped themselves to the food and drink, Glumpo couldn't help but gaze out the window. Looking down at the crimson orb that was his home world, a view afforded to so very few but would soon become a commonplace. Beautiful view, isn't it? The human diplomat said, walking up to stand beside Lumpo. Yes, it is amazing. I still remember when we first arrived here. It was a sight to behold, seeing all the cities light up in the world at night. You you mean your ancestors? Hmm? Oh, oh no, I-, I was part of the crew when we first surveyed this world. But, then that was close to 100 clocks ago. Glimpo's outburst had paused the celebrations as all these fellows now looked at him with shock for his outburst. Something no diplomat worthy's fur should do. I must apologize for my outburst. Uh, No need. Uh, One moment, the AI is still deciphering blocks. It seems to be a new word the auto-translator units we are using hadn't identified. The human looked at the data slate as the AI worked out the meaning. But to Glimpo, it was odd. Her block was a block every newborn cub learned its meaning by the end of their very first ah the human exclaimed excitedly i see the meaning now glimpo was it glumpo nodded a block is what my race calls a month month glumpo echoed as he realized the humans had another word for their unit of time so your race arrived here some hundred months ago the human nodded yes we had to take things slowly so as to not cause chaos We slowly contacted your government and created vaccines so that we didn't cause plagues. It's why we took so long. So, you must be old then? Glumpo asked, looking up at the human with awe. There were only stories and fairy tales of races living as long as the human was saying. Oh boy, I do feel old. I turned 30 only last month. 30? Glumpo tilted his head, letting his ears flop in confusion. But you said that you were amongst those who first found us. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I meant years. Years? Plimpo's heard the ping from his status slate, revealing it meant roughly 12 plucks. Plimpo felt his heart rate quicken as he did the maths. So you're 361 plucks? The entirety of the party of diplomats froze in shock, looking at the human being older than any of the nations they called home. Who mean this youngster is actually older than I am? The old member of the group asked. Trembling. It was a common point amongst their race that with age comes wisdom, and with wisdom comes the right to rule. Well, uh, I mean, uh, when you put it like that, uh, I, I guess so. How old are you, Glimpo? You must be a few years old. Uh, I would roughly be two of your human years. Two? So the eldest of your number is? er uh, Roughly seven by your years, the old member declared. Wow, no wonder your race kept changing the diplomats that we were talking with. We kept thinking that we were doing something wrong. Now I'll need to have a word with the data team about this one, but to think that your race ages at the straight. Though, uh, it would explain your broadcasts. Broadcasts? The first thing we detected about your world was broadcasts. We thought that it was a translation error, a malfunction or even an interference that made it run at a faster rate. But to think that you live your lives faster than imaginable. Human... Are you an old member of your race? Glumpo asked, hoping the human was just a very old member. Me? Oh no. I still am my grandparents. Grandma, though, is a more machine than the nan these days, but she celebrated her ninetieth. Oh a thousand plucks. So many generations with one being. <laughs> the human began before pausing, feeling the awkward atmosphere descending. Guess we are the equivalent of elves, then. Elves? Glumpo repeated, hoping for a reprieve. Yeah, back on our world, we have a story about a race of beings called Elves. They looked just like us, but had pointed ears and lived millennia. The data slates all pinged and the delegates all paled, seeing the word meant a thousand iterations of a year. But you don't need to worry. There are all but fairy tales and stories. All due respect, human, a being living as long as you do to us would be from stories and myths for us. How confident are you they aren't out there? Well, bugger, I guess we'll need to look out for the possibility of space cells. Just hope they aren't the Warhammer kind. End of story. Story number two. Do not gamble with humans. Do not play games of chance with humans. Do not wager with humans. Written by Adjutant Stormy. Commodore Robert Tennyson was sat at a table at the orbital pub with Eridani Ambassador Rethic. Between the drinks and initial discussions of normalized relations, they had settled into a cordial, if adversarial, relationship. Tennyson had been sent to smooth relations with the Eridani, with diplomatic carte blanche to make it happen. The Eridani were proud industrialists, looking akin to an Earth Gecko, and saw Terran Space as a chief competitor. Terran ships and equipment were undercutting them, as good enough was the motto of the Terran engineer. From the shipyards on Luna and Mars, mass-produced trash by Eridani standards were flooding the market. The phrase serviceable covered their marketing. It works, but no warranty. Meanwhile, the Eridani shipyards above Epsilon Eridani 4 would produce masterworks, warranted for millennia. Eridani shipyard motto was, in galactic common, the last ship you'll ever buy guaranteed for 500 light years before first service. The drinks had yet to mellow the Rathic's adversarial nature, so Robert proposed a game, human poker, specifically Texas Hold'em. The Commodore had been dispatched with a budget of 200,000 galactic credits to make the Eridani see reason. Ambassador Rathic saw no reason not to take the human's currency as well as his dignity. After learning the rules of this human game, He ascertained the odds and probabilities of the adversarial game of chance. Being consummate engineers, the Iridani had a potential instinct for mathematics. Mrezik was certain his abilities in this field were far outstretched the human counterpart. The flop came. Kings of spades, king of hearts, queen of spades. Commodore Robert Tennyson had lost his shirt and shoes and breeches. Even while trying to count cards, his Iridani counterpart had cleaned him out. His ambassadorial budget lay in a mountain of chips his opponent had in front of their seat. The double or nothing, Robert declared. Rethick was confused. The man had nothing left to wager. Rethick dealt the cards. He had a king and a queen, an excellent hand, and a greater than 80% chance of victory. Robert Tennyson decided, in the human fashion, to go all in. Not personally. The alien across the table already had his goddamn shoes after all, but he did have diplomatic carte blanche. A blank check from Terra. I bet the orbital works of Luna, the Commodore said with far more confidence than was warranted. You what? Rethic spat in disbelief. You heard me. The Commodore spoke softly. Care to see my bet? Rethic seized. The currency on this table is a pittance compared to your frankly insane wager. Fine, we will counter with a hundred year lease, not ownership, of Epsilon Eridani 4 orbital works. Betting a revocable lease against the ownership of a primary orbital seemed to sound plan to the ambassador, not that their subpar construction facilities could make Eridani-quality ships. Commodore Robert Tennyson, in the stupidest gamble of his young life, and that included evading a superior fleet by diving next to a black hole, agreed. He had pocket bases, and by the flop, he was still 100% bluffing. With their betting done, the next card, two of diamonds. The final card, an Ace of Diamonds. Rethic shows his hand. I'm sorry, Commodore. Full House. Kings over Queens. I will enjoy dismantling your subpar construction facilities. Robert grins. Not so fast, my friend. Full House. Aces over Kings. I'll enjoy renovating your shipyard. Don't worry, there's no backing out. 17 of the other patrons of the Spar are Terran security. Our gain has been live streamed for the Terran Security Council. No weaseling out of our wager, the Commodore continued. Did I wager a major planetary body on a 1.5% chance that I'd win? You bet your sweet ass I did. I honestly did not expect you to call. Well, what's done is done. We all learned something very important today. If a human wants to bet, don't. End of story. It started with one ship. Written by Eddie Eddie Humanity arrived on the interstellar scene with more than a little chaos. Unlike most species, they didn't break free of their solar system and send out an attempt at an interstellar greeting from whatever primitive ship they used. Nor did they intercept some kind of external signal and take it as a sign to build for the stars. Rather, there was a crash landing. An old faster-than-light probe crashed into their colony on one of their other planets in their solar system. Humanity didn't really know what to do with it, but they worked out how to work the faster-than-light drive. Once they got that working, they built a shell around it, a big, airtight shell with all that they would needed to live. Without direction, or really any understanding of what they were supposed to be aiming for, they hurled themselves into interstellar space, the FTL drive shooting them across the galaxy. As you would expect, it didn't go very well. But contrary to most common, undirect FTL jumps, they didn't end up in dead space or inside a star or other gravitational anomaly. Rather, they appeared on the border of a rather aggressive species called the Kral. The Kral, in their infinite wisdom, decided the best course of action was to try and take this new species captive. Humanity responded by taking over two Kral ships that had been sent to capture them, mostly by being vicious bastards with no regards for the conventions of war or civil interactions. We only found out centuries later that at the time, humans were just recovering from a civil war, and most humans looked quite unfavorably on attempting to take prisoners with microwave and electrical weapons. Either way, the humans went from having one FTL-capable ship to three. So what did they do? They reversed the course of the original one, sending it home before crewing the other two and pointing them in random directions and repeating the process. Now, most species FTL drives have unique signatures, so when the Krull FTL drive flash was registered above the agricultural world in my own species space, the logical process was to attempt to ask what was going on. With no response, but no active weapons, the standard procedure was to dock with the unknown vessel and attempt to board it. Well... The humans had seen the song and dance before, but this time they had some Krull to throw in the way first to see what we'd do. Being at war with the aggressive species, we detained them with extreme prejudice. The humans decided they didn't like this, and since we didn't have their language in our translators, any attempt at communication failed. The humans, now armed with their own weapons, the Krull weapons, managed to defeat the small boarding team and once again took control of the ship. So humanity had another ftl capable ship well what do they do they finally work out how to direct the ftl sort of they jump both ships home and rather than doing the sensible thing of informing their government that there are other species out there they decided that they would recruit a mix of people the most adventurous the most self-sufficient and those that craved combat and excitement they loaded up these two ships with people and jumped out again The worst part was when these ships ran out of supplies. Did they just starve or go dormant till another ship came along? No, they would jump to supply stations marked on the ship's maps or on top of shipping lanes and raid those supplies. They even took to taking some aliens with them. Those that fought with the most ferocity or matched the humans' mating preferences were offered a chance to join the crews of these ships. Plenty took them up on it. The most frustrating and confusing thing was that these stolen ships had no rhyme or reason to them. There was no organized raid. Each ship was a law unto itself. Some had mercy and would not kill you if you surrendered. Others butchered entire stations to acquire new ships and resources. The fact that the humans would paint these ships. Some were painted bright red and white with a strange circular symbol running along the sides. Others were painted to be covered in what we have since learned was the mythical human creatures, dragons and the like. And some, the most brutal of them all, were black with human skeletons painted across them. We had a concept of pirates long before humans arrived. But they were slavers and mercenaries, not these bands of raiding lunatics. Now, you might be asking what happened to that second FTL ship that was mentioned earlier. Well, that's a very curious story. That ship encountered a tiny mining outpost in a system that was only remarkable because of its high density of base metals, iron, copper and the like. Things that every race needs in huge amounts, but are abundant across the galaxy. That ship took that base and turned it into their own personal fiefdom, and as the humans learned to use FTL drives through the process of trial and error, and other species joining their crew and being familiar with the basic function, that tiny mining base became something of a haven. Any ship that was flying human colors could dock at that base and take rest from their raiding, and they could be repaired, refit, and even sometimes acquire new crew. Humanity had joined the galactic community, but not with a hello or even we are here to conquer, but rather they joined through stealing ships from most known sentient species, then using those ships to raid other species. The intergalactic politics was a mess for several decades after that, people accusing others of raiding their bases, stealing ships and all kinds of other things. Only when proof that these ships performing these actions were in turn stolen was given did the accusations calm down. All the while, more and more of these raider ships kept cropping up, from where no one really knew until someone decided to track the entire mass back, eventually asking the Kral Empire what happened. The Kral Empire at this point was in a mess itself, It turns out that the Krull's taste in food matched humanity's pretty closely so that they were primary targets for raids. Four decades of having your food shipment stolen to the point where mostly the military is spending time escorting and guarding the food is difficult for even the most powerful empires. After recovering the information from the Krull, the intergalactic community finally turned its eyes towards Earth. Arriving to find just as much of a mess as the intergalactic community was, but at a much smaller scale. The human governments had gotten their hands on various tools and weapons from the raiders, purchased at immense prices, to be used to enrich their economies or themselves. The weapons to be used against their foes, Earth itself, had become a near-constant low-level war as humanity tried to wrest control of these world-changing devices from one another and the populace wanted to live a life away from the constant threat of alien technology being used to wipe huge swaths of them from the planet an escape that the fleets of stolen ships gladly provided. So, there wasn't even a central government to blame for these madcap humans, stealing ships and crews, then using the stolen ships and weapons to raid for supplies. There was not really any unified humanity any longer, just an ever-growing fleet of ships, each a law unto itself and whose nature and temperament was dependent on the captain. There were humans who hadn't been born on Earth and saw this nomadic raiding culture as their way of life. The galaxy's nature and political scene changed immensely from the arrival of a single species. Trade is now calculated as a loss margin, based on human activity in the areas it is passing through. Walls are now far slower and more expensive because you have no idea when or even if the human raiders will turn up and steal your supplies, or be paid by your foe to break your supply lines. Even simple mining expeditions have to be careful unless they want to risk coming across a human outpost and being inducted into the crews of other ships and their vessels repurposed into the boarding devices for acquiring new ships. This is how humanity joined the galactic community. They rebuilt a crashed ship, used it to steal two more, and they just went from there. It is only in recent years that we have finally acquired enough data, mostly through trading with these raiders, to finish putting together the full translation matrix and start communicating with these humans. The thing that makes it difficult is that non-humans born into their society are taught the human language as well as their mother tongue, and they view the human language as some kind of secret code to be used only amongst those in the know. The majority of humans are more than happy to remain as these space pirates, or as some call themselves, space vikings. Some, however, seem to be closer to traders and merchants with no qualms about shoot-first, negotiate-later attitude. Humanity has joined up here in the stars, and they did it by stealing things, and they don't plan to stop. End of story. I would just quickly like to thank the T5 peeps. Dragon Soup, Cold War Boomer Waffen, of Cerberus, Red Panda 121, Leslie 517, Bushmaster 177, Caspar Arnold, Cam Maxwell, Sans the Skeleton, Leitchchok, Dragzoon WRE, and Lord Azricol. Thank you very much.